let's uh, see if we can explore this together. So this is we, we will do more about the how to how you start in this, but also particularly what I want to touch on is um, my intention for the first one was to show you what is what's the how it's how it kind of runs and is. This one I want to actually show you uh, some of the philosophy and principle behind why we've gone where we've gone and how we've got to where we've got. Uh, so we, Robbo and I are going to do a bit of a team back and forward. So um, I'll give you something of why we've gone with this model of ministry. Robbo's going to do a, a kind of a, an, a consideration of this model versus congregational model in light of his experiences as a minister doing a congregational model, then entering into this world and his engagement with that and reflection back and forth on that. Robbo's very good at analysing and so on. Then I'm going to do something of the relationship of the way this, the structures all work together uh, and then we'll dig into the maturity work and then we'll have questions. Uh, make sense? So the, one of the, um, you come into a context of church planting. So I, I was a parachute church plant. I come from, I was doing ministry most recently at Gladesville and I was on the uh, staff team there, assistant minister there uh, for four years with a man called Brian Telfer who's a, a legend. He, um, he's one of the great ones and he's roaming around somewhere uh, you ought to just tap his shoulder. He'd love to tell you some of the story. Um, but uh, uh, I left there planning to come up just with my wife and our two kids at that stage and literally just arrive here, get a house and mow lawns and work out how to reach the community. That was pretty much how we were doing it. Now, I, I love risk and I love creating and making things from nothing. It's... Um, I. Uh, if there's a risky way to do something, I'll tend to go the risky way because I hate dying wondering. Um, and if there's, a, if, if, there's, if there's a possibility that a path will create an amazing outcome with a massive amount of potential for destruction or if there's a percentage option that will might get you some safe outcome that's not as great but no risk, I will always go the amazing outcome with a potential of total burn and crash and disaster and um, I don't know that's it so that's me and so I came here just with a I, it just wasn't at all a concern to come and do this kind of work here uh, and we came with a desire to actually reach the um, the whole central coast and the paradigm for us was the paradigm of the crisis worker who lands on Phuket beach after the tsunami not as Robbo talks about, the GP managing a general practice. And that's an important paradigm shift. And I think, will you touch on that at all? Okay. Um, so I think, I thought of myself as the man who arrives to reach 30,000 people, not the man who arrives to manage a congregation. Critical paradigm that I operated with. And so I'm thinking... How can, I, how can I begin to evangelise mission into existence, this church, with the purpose of mobilising those I get for the sake of reaching the 30,000? That's constantly in my head. Um, now, the, uh, the, the, the problem is that as you come to do that and you're thinking 30,000, the problem is that it's just you. I'm one person with a wife who's very gifted and able, and that's it. Um, so what's critical to reaching 30,000 people is multiplying resource. That's, 
that's the engine that you've got to get onto. And you do it, though, in a context of very hard soil. So Australian conditions are very much different to American conditions. Uh, some of you may have heard me tell this story, but I visited America. I've, I've, been, I've been twice, and um, the second time I went, I was sitting in an airport and met a friend who was in, Brisbane, in ministry in Brisbane who was a good young guy who'd gone over to do a church planting apprenticeship. Um, he'd been running a church of about 40 or 50 in uh, the Queensland area there. He'd gone over to do a church planting um, uh, um, apprenticeship for a year, 12 months. He was a good guy. He wasn't, he wasn't amazing. He was a good guy. And uh, he went over there. After four or five years here, he got to about 40 people. Went over there. He and another apprentice started a church plant as part of their training program. And he said to me, Andrew, this is a different world. He said, do you know on our first week of launching the church plant, we had 700 people on the first week of their church plant launch. And I said, that's extraordinary. He said, look, actually, don't worry. It did drop back from that. It dropped back to 550. Now, that is a different world to the kind of world we operate in. And uh, so we come into a context of hard soil and we come into a context of Australians being a long way back, typically. That is to say, to, to get them to think about the Christian faith, uh, you've got to put a lot of things in place, unpack a lot of stuff. Um, to bring them to conversion is a considerable process. And then to nurture them from... Uh, I've now come to Christ. What does it mean to live as a godly, Christ-centered person who's committed to church and thinks about maturing in the word and prayer and committed to ministry and then committed to mission? That process in the Australian context is a massively significant one because they don't have any, they don't have any social points of contact to know what it looks like to be that kind of Christian. Whereas, in, again, in America, you've got... Um, I might steal some Robo comment. He, he makes the comment when he's visited that every single American you visit who may be an atheist or a, a secular person has a, has a grandmother who was probably married to some pastor guy in somewhere. You know, or their uncle is in the ministry or the connections are far more deep than for us. So you've got people a long way back and the process to move them through conversion into establishment, discipleship, mature Christian life takes a significant investment, massive investment. So let me give you some... When we started the church, we saw a couple of people converted and most of them fell away because we couldn't do the proper discipleship processes after their conversion. It, we just had no one who could walk with them through getting established in the faith. Now, why do we have no one who could do that? Because I didn't have time for it. So I'm... I'm here on my own running a public meeting that's growing. Uh, some conversion growth, some transfer growth. You've got all of that happening. You've got a ministry that even if it's a... Once you get to 30 people, you've got all the public event of stuff to manage. It's inevitable. You've got, um, you know, I've got to prepare a sermon. I've got to get outlines ready. I've got to get chairs, hall, hire... Um, I've got to get a bi-lectin, I've got to uh, manage the door, I've got to do occupational health. And there's a whole host of things that take up your 50, 60 hours. You've probably only got 10 hours free board left to do other stuff and you're trying to develop other areas. I mean, you, you don't have time to do the follow-up. Of a, you hear what I'm saying? Which is a problem. And so what I'm conscious of is if I'm going to genuinely engage into 30,000 conversions, 
I need to not only get enough of an army of people to connect to those 30,000 people, I need to get enough of an army that can actually walk with each of those people through the discipleship process to actually embed them into the Christian life. Wow, how am I going to get that happening? Well, we need to free up resources. And um, magnification is an easy one to illustrate this with. Most of us have no gifts in the area of music. I certainly don't. And so I was never tempted to try and lead the services in the singing. I was forced by necessity to have to get a volunteer to do that because I just had no gifts in that area. But having gotten a volunteer to do that, he was then able to invest considerable energy in making that far better than I could have made it. Simple illustration, yeah? The point is, if I'm going to get this church engineered for mission, I'm going to need someone like that music volunteer who can invest with gifts significant energy to engineer it to really get it flying. Because I don't have the time to do it. And every area of Christian development, I need to do that with. So, connecting new people, you know, the whole welcoming process and so on, I need someone who can invest considerable energy the maturing growth group structures, ministry training, development, recruiting, uh, and back into evangelism. So that immediately gives me, I know, okay, if I'm going to make this thing sing, I need to actually, I need to find people who can invest considerable resources into each of those areas. I've identified the five areas, which is the Rick Warren thing. Is So I think it's, there's lots you don't want to go with Rick Warren, right? But I think that simple conception of, what the purposes of Christian maturity are, I, th- I think is gold. Uh, and don't be too ashamed to take stuff off other people. Uh, there's no, I think the whole copyright and um, plagiarism issue amongst Christians, we just, just ignore it. Take anything you like. Pretend it's yours. Anything from here you can have. Um, really, we're just making bullets, so why stop you taking them? You know what I mean? You, you go and shoot people graciously and lovingly with them. But um, So you've got to free up people to, who can give investment. Now, uh, that's a given for me. Um, the considerations for mine, therefore, were where do we start that process? W- what are the building blocks you begin to put in place? Because you've got a small group. Uh, how do you manage that very beginning phase? Now, we've started a number of churches since ours with a lot of this already thought out and put in place, and we're seeing it work. Um, so Daniel Godden, particularly down at Salt Church, has just run out the whole model down into Salt Church with uh, volunteers in each of those places. And uh, it's, it's been a great help. Now let me um, throw to Robbo. Robbo, give us uh, uh, five or so minutes on what you see are the challenges between the two models, the, the, this kind of purpose model of um, not a congregational pastor and then planning another church with a congregational pastor, but rather... Uh, a leader who steps back and puts focus, purpose, people in place. Yep. So I, I think one of the key f- uh, ideas in all of this is intentionality. So working out what do you need to have happen to have uh, a thriving, growing church where people are, are coming to faith, people are growing in maturity, learning more and more about Jesus, following him, loving him more. Um, How do you build a church where all the things that need to happen actually happen? Um, I think it's like a basic question. It's really obvious. And yet I think so many churches, whatever model they pick, uh, 
fail to actually ensure that the things get done. And I think, um, so park that idea, uh, I'll come back to it in a sec. Another idea I want to I want to load up for you is the uh, somebody asked in the previous session about the training models, and um, uh, the, the, where do we get staff from for churches and that kind of thing, and I, I think there is there's a truth in that. Uh, I, I think a good analogy is it's a little bit like we're trying to um, run an air force, but the only people we train are pilots. So all we've got is pilots. We don't train anybody on air traffic control, building runways maintaining planes, building planes, arming planes. So what you end up having is a group of pilots sitting in a shed and moaning about they wish they could fly planes. They don't end up actually uh, flying in the sky in jets that work. And I, I think we're, we're very like that. So partly what's happening is we, we operate within a system that's been built and built up over generations. And we have a lot of people who are invested in being the, uh, trained to be and, and really only envisioned to be the congregational pastor. They, they can't think, they won't think beyond that. And uh, I think it's one of the things we, we need to do is help people to, to bust out of that, both at the level of an individual person, uh, the individual minister who's been trained in one way, to, to think into how can they serve, where can they serve, how can they expand their, their uh, conception of what they could do. And at the other level, we actually need to be training people for all kinds of other areas of ministry life. So we've got air traffic controllers and people that can build runways and all that kind of thing and are happy doing that and, 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 and are good at doing that and all that kind of thing. So they're two sort of ideas that I, I kind of keep in my head. We operate in this system where we've only got pilots and we need to think into that and we, we have this um, uh, intentionality that we need to keep focusing on and we, 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 we constantly drop on the floor and, and, and lose um, so I think as you think into these models, the, 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 the different models and, and, and here we're counterpointing the, the EMS model with the congregational pastor model, whichever model you, you end up running with, you've got to work out how is it that you're going to get done the things that need to get done to make uh, your church work. Because you know, most of you, if you're here, if you're in ministry, you'll have some sense, I hope, of the things that need to get done. But what you'll find is, I think, uh, is you, you'll find that, uh, I mean, if you pick the five M's we, we run with and say that's a, a, and I think that's a pretty good model of the things that need to happen in a church to make a church healthy. What you'll find in the congregational pastor model very often, what you'll find in me personally, if you have me running a church, a little bit what Andrew was saying, you'll find that I'm really good at one, maybe two, maybe three things, but I'll really dip out on one, two, or three things. And those one, two, or three things that really need to be done just won't get done. If I sit in that role in such a way as I'm sort of trying to do everything, run everything, and I haven't actually understood clearly the things that need to be done and that I can't run it and that I need to pull somebody else in to do it. And so I think sometimes what we do as we build churches, so we obviously... At a very basic level, we all start as congregational pastors. If you're going to plant a church, you, you start. There's, there's Andrew there and, and Kathy, and they, they start the church. But as you grow, one of the received wisdom uh, issue, uh, one of the pieces of re received wisdom is the next uh, person you put on ought to be a clone of you, ought to be another college-trained pastor teacher. Now, that might be true for the first one, but if you keep doing it, 
you'll end up with the group of pilots sitting in a shed. What you need to do is you need to think into, I, th I think, um, how can you have um, all of the things happening? How can you recruit the kind of people that are going to actually get done what needs to get done? Uh, and not just because what you'll end up doing. For example, I've I've been trained at Moore College. Um, if if I was to run a church and I was to to grow it and build it and keep recruiting more college graduates to come and work with me, and they were the only people I'd recruit, they would tend to mimic my strengths and weaknesses, and it would be particularly true because they'd be the people I'd pick. I'd pick the people that were like me if I wasn't careful. Um, so you've got that that kind of thing happening. Um, a couple of things I'd like to say just about the um, the the, the the congregational pastor model that I think it's just helpful to keep in the back of your head. Um, one thing is it's very, very expensive. So if you presume that the model of ministry is uh, every 80 people needs to have their own four-year trained college graduate, um, you'll tend to find that model will only work in very high socioeconomic areas where they can afford to pay that kind of money. Um, when you start moving to the outer edges of cities, as um, uh, you know, real estate prices go up and people's mortgages go up and we, we generally are a little poorer than we were, it gets harder and harder. So you need to be drawing in other people. You need to be drawing in those volunteers, significant volunteers. One of the things that I think that Andrew's done very cleverly here is drawing people into ministry slowly and steadily. So Glenn's a great example. He's somebody who's um, really come back to the faith here he, he had a terrible time in the wilderness he's come here he's kind of come back to life uh enjoying christian life starting to serve starting to serve more and more he started actually i think probably a year or 18 months where he worked part-time worked part-time with us and then came on full-time with us the guy is a genius um he hasn't been to college though he's not here is he i wouldn't like to say that while he was here but um the genius <laughs> don't want to swell his head up but he is a genius and, and and yet he hasn't been to college. There's an, I don't I don't think you could find a person who could do his role like he does. Um, so you know, th th help you to, to think of that. It's very expensive. Um, another thing to to think about is um, those kind of guys, the congregational leader guys, are very hard to manage as a pack. So you get a pack of those guys together. I think what you'll find is the average guy will be able to run two or three of them. A strong guy, maybe four or five. And a genius, like somebody like Bruce Hall, can maybe run 10, 12 of them. But they're very hard to manage because they'll tend to want to pull. They want to pull in their own direction and do their own thing. And so you've got to, got to try and if, – if, if you envision them to be the apex leader, it's hard to get 12 apex leaders in a room and, and, and run anything that's, that's useful. So what happens is they tend to either be dysfunctional or they just, they, they just break up and spill all the time. So what you find is – they don't um, hang together very long. And so you get lots of turnover, which leads to the next problem, that the benefits of the congregational leader model, and there are substantial benefits of that model of the, the, the pastor who knows his, his flock and, and ministers to them all. The benefits dribble away very quickly if the guy in the job turns over every two or three years because he's only there long enough to get to know people's names before he moves off anyway. And so a lot of these supposed benefits don't, uh, actually endure in, as churches grow with that model um, because they, they just can't hang together and, and, and work over the, the, the long term. They're not, they're not stable. Um, um, there was one other thing I was going to say, but I can't remember what it is. Anyway, 
Yeah, any other thing you want me to mention? Yeah, question. Uh, yes and no. I think um, I think you would. Ah, oh, the, the question was: if you've got people who are one of your senior M's who aren't theologically trained, are they going to lead you into funny places, not being well thought out? Um, I think um, maybe you, you want to talk to it, but but I think one of the ideas is there's. I mean, the maturity M is probably one of the M's where you'd want somebody theologically educated in that role. Um, some of the other M's. Um, don't require it as much. But I think ideally, yes, what, what, we're, what we're not saying, we're, we're not saying that we want uh, nobody to be theologically trained at all. That's, that's not at all what we're trying to say. But what we're saying is open up the categories a little bit. <laughs> um, you know, I think there's, there's lots of roles in church for, for people who perhaps don't have that particular kind of training. Uh, yeah, and I'll show you a bit of a, schema of how we think about the priorities of all the work um, what I'm looking for all the time is is someone who's uh, humble enough to work with what we're about and where we're going and can be shaped by me in that not by me but by me in my ministry of the word and so that particularly is a critical ingredient If uh, where it breaks apart any staff team, any congregational team, any volunteer team breaks apart when you've got people who aren't prepared to uh, give genuine and heartfelt acceptance to the fact that you're leading and I'm working with you. Um, just a fact of work. Now, you, if you're a strong leader, you can carry people who aren't quite that. Um, so some leaders can actually manage people who are somewhat disruptive and disrespectful and they'll sustain and manage that. At some cost themselves, but they're strong enough to hold. And you've got to actually discern yourself when you bring people into high-level leadership roles, uh, whether, they'll be, whether they'll be able to work with you in going where you see the vision of this church going. And that's a real test for your own leadership then. Um, and in that, you've got to work it so that you're not the dictator but as you bring higher level people, you've got to actually begin to let go of you being the one who creates the vision on your own and begins to bring them, drawing them in in genuine ways to work this out together. You've got all of that slow mix as you grow and develop. Um, now, we, we're blessed with very high level staff leaders and volunteer leaders who I think it's fair to say are now a genuine part of us creating and exploring what we are. I don't know if you feel that, but that's what I intend for you. Um, that's what you'll be, all right? So there you go. Um, all right, let me... Do you want to ask anything else just on that little bit so far? Um, Andrew touched on something there just in terms of you work out who you are. I think it's not just you as, as a leader if we're talking to a, the, the, the leader of the church. You've got to work out who you are. You've got to work out where you are, um, what your location is, where you are at in, in history of time, what money and resources you've got. Those things will have some influence on the way you structure. One of the things that's quite um, tricky about coming and seeing what we do here is um, to some extent um, we're almost unreplicatable. Um, to some extent, I mean, a, a good example is, you know, it's cost us 
uh, so far about $6 million, $6.5 million to develop this site. Um, there's a church up the road um, that has 100 people in it. And it's cost them, Andrew touched on this before, $3.5 million to develop their site for their people. They had real estate that they sold and, and used to build it. But as an example, um, developing the resources, like the, the real estate resources you need for church, is, is expensive and getting more expensive. And in some parts of the country, if you're in Sydney, if you're in Melbourne, um, it can be almost impossible. And so you may well have to think into structures of ministry that fit your place and your economics. Um, so, so you don't want to copy us. I, I think I think learn from our principles and things, but you don't want to necessarily try and copy what we do. Does that make sense? One of the one of the reasons I span out of the 100 churches dotted everywhere was the economics of it being able to be done anyway. But the other factor was we're in a greenfield place. So, I, and we had we were beginning to draw into our ministries property developers uh, and I was an engineer I'm a civil engineer who knows how to build stuff and so it's there are a number of factors that led me to conclude that if anyone could do the big development nine acres three th- we're in the best position to pull it off and so under God I felt actually obliged to pursue it because of the circumstances he put us in do, do you see but you've got to work out and measure all of that given who you are, your context and situation. Don't underestimate the power to raise money. One of the problems with, with uh, leaders is that we tend, to, we tend to buy the line that the economy's bad and people won't be able to give now. I've been going uh, 15 years, and every year I'm told that you won't be able to raise that amount of money again. We've been able to do it up till now, but not again because the economy's going down. It's been being said for 15 years, but the story goes like this. You won't be able to do that again. It was all right back then because it was a really good time not next year, five years later, not next year. The last five years have been really good, but not next year. Now, something's weird going on there, isn't it? And, and I think it is, we tend to be very, lots of people tend to be glass half full, uh, pessimistic. We're being told that the next little while is hard to raise money. But again, let me tell you, the, the employment rate is as low as it's been for a long time. Yes, there's a little bit less, what, there's 0.2 of a percent less of people in the employment race, but we're still talking 54 5.5% employment. That's almost full employment. Now, yes, there's been a global financial crisis, but when people have got their jobs, there's money. So don't let the line that we can't... You've got to be careful of all that. Um, all right? Let me, um, let me give you some... See if I can draw this for you. We make up these drawings as we go, but here's the, the, the big thing that we're about is... Uh, and I please forgive the um, writing, but disciple making. So that's I believe that's the mission of the church is to make disciples. Uh, now ha- th- that's the endeavour. How do you make disciples? You're making building Christ Church by the proclamation of the word. So disciple making is a, a word activity in the hands of people, spirit people. Got that? There's a kind of basic fundamental stuff. And if you've not read Cole's book on uh, Trellis and the Vine. Go and chase it up. That's, I think, a fundamental that we need to become part of our DNA and so on. So word people, spirit people, disciple making, that's the endeavour. Now, how do you do that, though? Um, One of the simple ways to think about it, the most simple way to think about it is uh, you you go um, uh, one-to-one. So you, I've got the word, I'll work with the word in someone's life and embed them and disciple them and grow them. You do it in small groups. 
so let's do that a little more efficiently. Instead of me just with one other person, let me do it with a group of people, small group. And then you do it with a pulpit. All you're doing is getting more efficient still and getting a bigger group where I can actually disciple now 100 people. But you see what the language is I've just done there? I've just said that that is disciple-making. Pulpits disciple-making, small groups disciple-making, one-to-ones disciple-making. The thing that we want to actually urge you to see is that it's not just these activities that are disciple-making. They're the heart and engine of it, but all the activities of EV Church are disciple-making. And let me give you some conception of how it works. Uh, we've, we've, with the help of others who have considered these things, worked out that the big things we're trying to achieve in people's lives is that they might magnify God. Let's see if I can... I'll just use shorthand. You can work this out. That they, they have a high view of church, that they know what it is to be a member of church and are passionate about community, uh, that they are in ministry and that they're missioning. There's kind of the dimensions of Christian life that we want to get hold of with, with the engine for it all being maturity in word and prayer. Now, you see what I've done? I've not just made that one over here. I've actually, for us, that's the engine that drives this activity and all the other trellises of EV which are built out of these structures, are part of the disciple-making activity of EV. This is not the maturity work growth group structure is not the, the disciple-making part of which these are then the, out, the outcomes of that. This is one part of the disciple-making activity to energise and give food for the disciple-making activities that go on in here along with the trellises that are associated with that whole thing is disciple-making. That makes sense? Which therefore gives you some sense. I mean, I, I, just another thing, church is not about the task. Rob, I used the line, work out what tasks you want to do. When he uses that word task, he doesn't mean jobs. He means what, what are the things you're trying to achieve in someone's life? What you're, trying to, what, what you're about is to thinking, what am I trying to achieve in someone's life, not what jobs need doing? Got the difference? The difference is the job isn't running growth groups. The thing I'm trying to achieve is maturity. And I use growth groups to achieve that end. See the difference? So the maturity work is... is the, the job I employ someone for or raise up a volunteer to do is not just to run a structure. It's to achieve an outcome, maturity. And we have found at this stage the most helpful structure to achieve that outcome is growth group. We don't just get volunteers to lead the singing because singing's not the thing we're trying to achieve. What we're trying to achieve is hearts and minds and lives captured by Christ, praising and honouring him, magnifying him. The singing is an expression means to that end and part of that. So we're employing people, we're raising up volunteers to achieve magnification, mem- community, care, connection. They're the achieve- How we do that, the jobs we do to achieve that are secondary. Does that make sense? Now... Um, I'll say one more thing and I'll pause again. The, the, having conceived it like that, what that meant for us was that as we started the church, 
I realised that to get all of this happening in a, in a healthy way, the engine needed to be in place. And so I invested heavily in this. This was one of the key things I did through these three activities, one-to-one, small group and pulpit. That's where I invested a lot of my energy to get the small group that were drawn together um, fed and nurtured with the word so they can catch the vision, get energised, get fuelled up, get compelled and driven uh, as we then draw together to greater maturity so that they could see what church is about and what things they need to pursue more. And then I began to put other pieces in place. You got it? Now, church planters, I, I think the kind of, I think the kind of um, uh, profile of a church planter needs to be uh, strong here, strong here particularly. There you, we want mission-minded word people who are planters, I think. Okay? Um, because I came as an event. My heart is ev- I'm an evangelist. I have some gifts in evangelism and in disciple-making word ministries. And so I was able to come and, and from the very beginning lay a foundation of mission-mindedness, get mission happening and driven in the context of caring about us being word-fed, nurtured, discipled in that aspect that feeds and so on. Then recognising these other areas needed to be done, I brought other gifted people into this work here as we went along. Okay? The first staff member we employed wasn't a youth minister. Um, now, again, this is us. You've got to work it out in your setting. But I worked out that if I wanted to build a platform that would uh, pr- produce momentum and here, here's the crass reality and the finances to develop even further, youth ministry wasn't going to cut it for me. The youth guy would do a wonderful work amongst youth, but they didn't have any money. <laughs> uh, okay, so I wasn't going to employ a youth minister. for, And, I, and we had parents saying, um, where's the youth minister? Church is meant to have a youth minister. You've got your, you know, where's the youth guy? Uh, we won't stay at the church if you don't have a good youth group. Uh, all of that was happening and I was managing that and I was able to raise up sufficient volunteers to keep that going with enough quality that it largely held our people. We lost a few, but it largely held our people. Um, and so where I invested our money was in Craig Dobby. So he was our first staff appointment. Craig came as a gifted mission guy, but a passionate word guy, again. So that meant that what we could do is I could get him, I could get him to tackle this work in a deeper and bigger way than I could ever get to. So he invested in the engine of church. He gave himself to training up leaders, discipling leaders, getting the growth group structure to multiply and develop, whilst at the same time he and I together developed the mission side of the work, and Craig gave himself to recruiting and training as well. So we covered some of these. I made sure I led volunteers in these two works. But you see how I'm trying to use the, the resource, scan resource we've got to cover all of these bases, but particularly focus in the area where I saw strategically we'd make the greatest platform-building lever that we could jump off from to get more resource for this other area. Make sense? Um, and so as, as we've gone on in life, I've, I've stepped back more and more from these M's. Craig has stepped back and we've begun to bring other people, raising up volunteers, bringing outsiders into this work and slowly resourced and developed it uh, so that 
so that there was significant high-level energy going into each area, which is why we can put on a conference like this and I don't even notice it. I mean, you, 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 I don't know if you've picked it up yet, but I look at the, the quality of what happens, and this is not this is not this is not something about me. This is there are people around who are doing extraordinarily high-level work who are all volunteers, and it's because they've had training invested in them by people that I could never have got to. You know, because we set a platform to release people to do that kind of work. Yeah. Let me pause again. See if you've got any questions you want to ask. When you're thinking about employing different people for the five M's, um, you said that back on that question before that it doesn't necessarily have to be someone with theological training. Um, you've employed all males. Um, is there is that because they um, come basically still as a past pastor of that area, or it just happens to be males? Or is there some stance you have on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Ruth. No, we, we've employed we, we've. Over the years, employed on half a dozen women. We've got about, I think, we've got three or four women on staff at present. Um, the, the, the complication is that uh, one of my, you'll hear it tonight. Don will be talking about complementarianism and some of the theology of that and so on, which is where we're at. Um, we're very firmly convinced that uh, marriage, husband headship, and so on, church leadership is the family of God, one Timothy three, and so on. You've got that portrayal, and so. The leadership uh, issue of women over men is a conviction we carry. But um, th these things, as you move out of the pulpit ministry and the high-level teaching work, which is clearly for men, the responsibility of men, as you move out of that, the dynamic of leadership becomes somewhat nuanced. Uh, so it's possible to have a woman run a team with men in it in such a way that she's not the head over them in a, in a sense that undermines, I think, the uh, command of 1 Timothy 2. And there's a way for a woman to facilitate activities that isn't the head leader. A man in that role would probably lead differently. A woman in that role can still exercise influence and shape that got to wrestle through some of that. So we have employed women in various roles. We had um, a lady run our magnification, a wonderful, wonderful godly woman called Sally. She ran our magnification area for some years. It was awkward, and she had it was there was a high level intention in there was a high level of stress involved in her having to manage that, not be the head, uh, all of that. So it was always only an interim, temporary thing. Because these these roles now in our church life are senior staff. This is these guys; they're running bigger groups than most minister. The average church in Australia is sixty to seventy people. They're running bigger volunteers teams than the average church with more staff in it than anyone else. So they, you're driven to have to have men here. But we. Training again, I, I, teaching, yes. I think the expository declaration of the gospel, laying it on people's consciences, that kind of teaching role is for men. Um, yeah, I think that's a different thing from laying on a person's heart 
the gospel expository work. I think, I, uh, you know, people fall in different places in this, but I think we're in a, we're in a point where there's a, um, there's a valid discussion about, is it possible, it's surely conceivable for a, a Priscilla Aquila, you see, who teaches Apollos, you see, you've got this, there is a place in which that doesn't overturn, undermine the patterns that God is calling us to in training and instructing. So let me give you an illustration. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul has um, women praying and prophesying. The very activity of public prayer is a teaching activity. You, you do appreciate that. Don't you? So every time someone gets up and leads us in prayer, they are teaching us in how to pray. I would call it small t teaching though. That is to say, it's not laying it upon my conscience how to do this. It's modelling and instructing in some form though. And the Bible is clearly open to that being a, an appropriate activity for women. Just Paul doesn't prohibit that to be the case. So it's working out in all your ministry structures, you know, are you close to the, uh, you know, the Priscilla Aquila instructing? Are you close to the women praying and teach, teaching through that exercise? Or are you close to the pulpit activity? And you've got to begin to work out and draw your lines in that spectrum. You want to ask anything else? Yeah, Richard. It seems that the focus of magnification is the Sunday gathering. Um, is it? That's right, Richard. Is it also communicated that all of, like a Romans twelve, all of life is magnification? How do you, how do you prevent that sort of understanding? Yeah, good, good. We um, we don't. We've worked hard to not call him the worship. So we've used the magnification word deliberately because, as you know, the last twenty, thirty years we're in the grip of a worship movement that's unbiblical. And so we've worked hard to set our structures and our language in such a way that it doesn't reinforce that mood. And so John is the magnification pastor. And it's a nice word to use because it's used in two contexts in the New Testament. It's used in the context of uh, the um, Magnificat, the uh, Mary's song, where she magnifies the Lord in song. And it's used in the context of Paul in Philippians 2, where he says, may my life life and death magnify the Lord. There's a whole of life magnifying. And so we try and we instruct that, we teach people that that's what we mean by this word. And we have what we call EV startup. I think what someone mentioned a little bit earlier, the pathway process for us is um, as, you, as you come into church, uh, you'll come into our public assembly as one of the pipelines. Another pipeline into church for us is through what we call life which is our evangelistic uh, mission activity. It's, if you've heard of Alpha, what we did was take the sociological model of Alpha and stripped the theology out and rebuilt the content. And it's not rocket science, it's just the gospel. And uh, so we've been running life now for, oh, I don't know, 10 years. We run it eight times a year. We get 70 people each time. Um, so that's just an engine that runs. There's a pipeline for people to come through life uh, but one of the things, as people come into church life with us, they go through, uh, we invite them into the beginning steps of membership. And the first step of membership, you go through uh, uh, newcomer's night. This is, we call this the pathway. 
So you're invited to a newcomer's night where it's just an informal evening, you have supper, you're told about the general picture of church and introduced and welcomed to some key leaders and invited to the next step. And people have questions, what is this church? Da, da, da. The next step is EV Startup, which is a four-week series that we run where you hear uh, about magnification. We, we teach on what we mean by magnification and we teach the theology of life is about magnifying the Lord. And it's one of those nights where people go, I had no idea. We have this, um, we have this aha experience for lots of people who come and are just astonished that they never knew Christianity was like this. And so it's quite a special evening. And then uh, we, we're the next night in, Mag- in um, EV Startup, we take them through the place of church. Our church is at the center of your being as a Christian. Uh, and then we take them through uh, some theology on the word and prayer, and we're just rejigging the last week in the moment. But they go through EV Startup, so they get positioned into church, and out of EV Startup, we encourage them, we move them into growth groups, so into the maturity world. And once a person's gone through that pathway, Robbo's maturity team now is responsible for them and what happens in their life. Um, now, you can come into this pathway if you're if you just arrive at church you'll come through newcomers uh, so this so this one here will bring you into newcomers but if you come through life you will probably have come through life and begun to come to church and into a follow-up group so you run a parallel process with us until uh, you want to actually connect into the normal growth group structures where you step into EV startup with us before you get placed into growth groups so all of that's to try and um, catechize people into life with us yeah yeah the uh, uh does that mean no one gets into growth groups except through EV startup there's an important there's an important uh principle it's uh it's the growth control principle it's got nothing to do with this picture it's another picture entirely the grow the control growth picture um, growth happens with less control. The more control you put on a system, the less growth is going to happen. Keep that in your head. Um, now, if you have an uncontrolled set of small groups out there all just powering on, running after people, you'll grow fast. The cost is because you've got no control over it, you'll end up with a weird bunch of groups who all end up running off and splitting up and going off doing their own things and you'll get all kinds of problems. So most of us have worked out that you actually have to exercise some control over your growth group structure to keep it on track with you. Yes? Leadership development, leadership um, appointments and so on and so forth. Rob is going to talk about maturity more in a sec. We did have a system where you could join a growth group straight from being met in church life, come into your growth group. Um, so there was a lot less control in the system. But what we were finding was that it was causing lots of grief in our growth group structure because people would enter growth groups not really knowing what they were doing and they took four or five years to work out what church was about so they never quite matured and developed with us and we lost their growth for some years. So two years ago, a couple of years ago, no, four years ago, that long. So a few years ago, four, maybe four years ago, we tightened right up on the control issue, started EV startup. You couldn't get into growth groups except through EV startup. But what does that do? 
as soon as you dial back your control, you actually slow your growth. We did that for a couple of years to build EV Startup as part of the culture of EV Church now so that it's, a, it's got a great brand, people love it, it's a very, people's very positive energy around for the event. So now we've actually dialed control back out this way so you can come back into our growth group structure by exception without having gone through EV Startup but we encourage people to go through EV Startup and it's now part of our culture that almost everyone does go through EV Startup. But we're, we've dialed back towards growth dynamic again with it. Uh, you were mentioning that uh, Robbo did that, like you, you moved across into maturity or whatever it was. You, yep. Um, how does that changeover take place nice and smoothly without people falling through the cracks? Like in the whole process, because you've got different people managing the different kind of strands, how yep. do you actually keep that process well-oiled? Good segue. Let's go. Give us your, pick that up and run with maturity. Um, to answer that question, um, what we have... There's, there's probably a few structures that, that help with that. One of the key structures, we mentioned it somewhere early in the day, was the establishment team. So the establishment team, which um, in the end now is, is run out of Rhett's area, the, uh, the, the ministry area, it, it's, it, what, what those guys do is they, they turn up at EV Startup uh, and they meet people there, get to know people, and their task, uh, their mission, if you like, is to look after people into church life. So they, um, they're, they're the group that ensure that um, they, they follow people and, and check and ensure relationally that people have actually moved from EV Startup into a growth group. That, so when they say, yeah, yeah, I want to join a growth group, we uh, allocate them to a growth group through various means. They make sure that they've actually stuck. Uh, they check with them, check that they didn't just bounce out. Um, they also then... Um, follow the person up for, for some months, even years if necessary, um, until um, they're at a point where it's time f to invite them into ministry with us and they, uh, they do that as well. So that's one of the structures. The other structure um, uh, that, that we use to, to help that process of not losing people is um, EV Hub, we call it, which is um, the Church Community Builder Program. We've invested quite heavily in that in terms of not necessarily money, although a little bit of money, but more the work that's gone into it. Um, we do run uh, our processes through that system. So it's actually designed so that somebody is responsible and knows there's, they're responsible. So it's a bit like, you know, in cricket, you, you call for the ball. Somebody's responsible. Somebody's called for every person. And ultimately, pastorally in church life, um, the ones responsible are Craig in mission, Glenn in membership or me in maturity. We're ultimately responsible for all of the people in church, one of the three of us, as we delegate it through the various um, systems. So there's a few different structures there. So what, what, what EV Hub does is it sort of systematizes and even computerizes the old process, which was not bad but not great either, which was more just conversations. So then we would occasionally lose people. You know, you'd say, oh, Whatever happened to so, – so you'd lose people at a few spots. You'd lose people at the spot of – so uh, we'd, we'd um, have somebody come through and they'd land straight into a growth group and unbeknownst to me, they bounced straight out again. Well, they never even got there. 
or they went for a week and never came back. And the leader, you talk to a leader, you're talking to a leader, you know, three months later, six weeks later, oh, how's so-and-so going in your group? Oh, yeah, they, they didn't show up. You meant to tell me. And it's too late. You know, you've left them for too long. So we used to have bounce-outs like that. So that's really helped us systematizing it. The smaller you are, you don't need to you don't need the computerized systematization, but you do need some system of calling for the ball kind of thing. So, anyway. um, so now what am I talking about? I'm talking about maturity and the growing the maturity structure or the pathway. How we develop? Okay. So maturity, <clears throat> as as we've discussed, one of the key structures that we've settled on for. Uh, the purpose of seeing people investing in God's word and growing and being grounded in the gospel is those small group uh, works. So we do a whole lot of other things too. I think I mentioned we've got our daily reading notes that help people read the Bible themselves. We've got, uh, we run our Digging Deeper course, which is like a, as the name suggests, digging deeper into the Bible. So it's a series of um, uh, courses that we do where people can come at night. We do lectures, Bible college sort of lecture type things. But the bread and butter of the maturity ministry structure uh, is the growth groups. Uh, the growth groups are where we do the bulk of our pastoral care. In and around the growth groups is where the bulk of our one-to-one -one ministry happens. Um, and so we're very concerned to resource that ministry really well. So um, when, when I arrived here, I think we had about 30 groups, something like that, I think. Um, and it was all in Craig's head. So Craig was running maturity. Um, and as soon as I arrived, it, it was like a break point because I couldn't load 30 groups into my head. Craig had kind of accumulated them over time and I, I couldn't do it. So we immediately had to start uh, systematizing. And the thing we worked out very quickly is what a growth group leader needs is support. They need help, uh, help to do, to do the task, help to work out uh, help to stay on, on, stay focused on what they're trying to achieve so that it doesn't end up, as Andrew was saying before, devolving down into tasks. So you don't want your growth group leader to be thinking, my job is to run the Bible study. You want them thinking, my job is to pastor these guys and see them maturing. That's ultimately what you want to see them doing. So over the years, we've developed a few things to help with that. Um, one is the system of uh, community leaders. Um, so leaders over a, a, a small territory, if you like, of growth group leaders, five or ten. Um, early on we tried three and it profoundly didn't work. So we, give, we try and give somebody, somebody who was a, a growth group leader, we try and give them three other growth group leaders to look after while they continued being a growth group leader. And it never worked. And we tried that for a couple of years and it was when I went to the to Saddleback in the US, just in a, in a um, they ran a seminar thing and one of them just had a throwaway line. They said, oh, early on we tried doing it um, with just three per, um, uh, they have, I don't know what they call it, something like community leaders. They said, oh, it didn't work. We worked out really quickly. It didn't work. And we moved to 10 and my ears pricked up. And they said, the reason it doesn't work at three is because it's actually not enough of a job. You give people three growth group leaders, what you'll find is one of them will be an old, uh, salt who doesn't need help from the person you've tried to allocate them to. One of them will be an, a needy new leader whose group will happen to be on the same night as yours and the other one will be probably a mate of yours. And it won't kind of work. So what we've worked out is we, we need to pull people out of being a growth group leader 
and make them a community leader and, and make it actually a bigger job. And all of a sudden that, that actually took up. It actually bit. So they, they've got enough to do. Um, they've got and, and they can deal with their growth group leaders in different uh, stages. They can deal with the old salt. They can deal with the young leader. They can go and spend a couple of weeks with the young leader and give him some, some help or her. Um, so so it, it, it started to work. So that um, that second layer, now that took so much time and energy to build. Um, I, I've said it before, I, I was in at one of our community leader meetings uh, about a year ago and, and it almost moved me to tears, this sense of a room full of people that were doing what I used to just do by myself. Uh, it was so relieving and so exciting to see these people who were all pulling in the same direction. But it took a lot of work to get there and a lot of pain. So um, I think it's worth doing, building in structures so that you minister to those guys so they can um, can flourish themselves. And so that you take some weight off them. They don't end up sort of just with their wheels spinning, not quite knowing what to do next, keeping them on focus, keeping them doing what, keeping them with the goal in, in sight, not just devolving to tasks. Um, the other ways we help them is we run training events. So we do... Um, we do once a term, as Andrew mentioned before, uh, growth group leader launches where we get them all in, in here. We, um, uh, we, we talk to them about what's going on in church because they're, they're some of our key leaders in church, uh, vision transmitters, if you like. Um, so we, we talk to them about what we're doing, what's going on, what's coming up. We, um, we talk to them about the book we're about to study. Um, I think I mentioned before, some of you might not have heard that, we, we network all of our study together. So our daily reading notes and our, what we study in growth groups and what, we're, uh, what the sermons are on in church is the same. So if we're doing Colossians, we do Colossians all term everywhere. And I think that's actually a really helpful model. Our sermons follow our Bible study. So we're having our growth groups running through Colossians chapter, the first part of Colossians chapter 1, and then they come to the sermon on it. So they've dug into it themselves, and so they're much more receptive and, and thought out as they come and active listeners when they come to hear the sermon. Um, so we, we network those things together. Um, the other thing um, we do in terms of um, supporting those leaders, as I mentioned before, in terms of the disciple-making purpose, um, more specifically, we realised one of our weaknesses was our growth group leaders, who were the people we were hoping would be doing uh, that more focused disciple-making. So they would take a person in their group and think about that person, work out where they're at and what they've got to do next. We realised it was very hard for them. For a lot of them, it was all they could do. Um, one guy in particular just always comes to mind. He used to spend three nights, all night, like from when he, from after he had dinner till when he went to bed, trying to prepare his Bible study and then one night delivering it. <laughs> I mean, it was he was really struggling. But He's, a, he's an extreme example of these guys. That they just can't do anything else but do the study. So we worked out for the, the, the leaders who were younger, perhaps less able, we would um, give them studies, give them videos where the pastors talk about the study, um, give them lots of resources. So we relieved some of that pressure from them so they could redeploy their energy into um, uh, people work in their groups. Um, now that's worked pretty well. It has backfired though. So as I said, we're always um, uh, um, restless about our, our, our work, trying to dig into it. One of the things that's blown back on us with that is even our best leaders now are using the studies we give them. And so what we've realised is we've short-circuited the process of them preparing their own studies. 
And so now we're embarking on trying to stream our leaders. So the, the more able leaders, we're saying to them, don't use the studies we give, create your own. Because when you create your own study, you'll do a better study. So we're trying to, um, you know, we're always doing different things and some things work better than others, but that's an example of where something good has um, gone a bit too far. Um, uh, that's, yeah, questions? Maturity? Yep. Yep. So changing up the groups. Um, in our night, uh, our Sunday night congregation, we change up the groups more regularly, just by necessity, because our leaders keep going through, going on to MPS and going to college or moving to Sydney or doing things. So there's a constant change over there. So we pretty much change groups quite a lot there. But in our other systems, we um, we try not to uh, to change them a lot. We change them when we need to. So groups as conventional wisdom is groups have a life cycle. Now, some groups can go on longer than others, and the older people get, the more they value that group of people that they've invested in, especially as they've got not a lot of time, so they value it a lot. So we we manage the groups um, uh, in terms of life cycles, and one of the things we've found very helpful is to be constantly starting new groups. What that enables you to do is let groups breathe. So sometimes what happens in a group is you get a person in a group who just doesn't want to be there doesn't like it, doesn't fit, uh, either they want to leave or, you know, the others want them to leave or, you know, that's that kind of thing going on. And having constantly starting new groups and, and, and having a culture that we're always exporting people out of our group who, who are going to become leaders or go and join a new group means you can just naturally and positively let groups breathe. You can let people leave and move and that kind of thing. So that's been quite helpful. But, um, yeah, we shut down groups uh, when they for various reasons, the leader can't do it anymore. It, it just sometimes they just lose energy and kind of die, and you you break them up. And um, we we do that, and it seems to work fairly well. Um, that side of things. What was the first part of your question again? Uh, yeah, new people. So back over here in this great diagram, which is three diagrams. Um, when you've got newcomers, so they come to the newcomers thing. So new people come to the newcomers. And basically, we we split them there when when we uh, when we're able to. Sometimes it's a little harder, but the the ones who we think aren't Christians or who really need basic help, we we try and get them to go to life. Um, the others we send to EV startup. Um, the ones that go through EV startup, if they get through that okay and they're kind of happy with where we're going and and they're content, um, we um, either depending on how many people are coming through, and it does seem to work in waves. But we have a lot of people coming through. We'll start new groups, um, and we're always starting new groups. So we, we try and bias it towards putting people in new groups because they tend to stick better if they join into a new group. But um, very often, too, we, we'll put them into an existing group and we have a, a culture of, of that happening. But it's not a dominant culture. Uh, so our groups are fairly stable. So as Andrew mentioned before, we don't have that model of groups that some churches have, that the growth group is of itself an evangelistic unit. So they're not trying to go and get non-Christians and bring them in or new people in church and bring them in, although some of that does happen. Um, but that's not their, their primary goal. Um, so that's how we do that side of it. On the life side, so when they go into life, when they come out of life, 
we put them into uh, in, in Craig's area in, in mission. They come into um, follow-up groups. Now, what we do with follow-up groups is we set up follow-up groups with a mission specialist and a growth group leader. So what we tend to do is we tend to find where we can our better growth group leaders who are perhaps leading a group that's about to fold or where there's a young leader coming up that they can hand their group onto. And we take them across into mission and they join with the, the mission specialist in following that group of people up. And what we, we try and do is form that group into a follow-up group which becomes a growth group in time. So what we ideally what we try and do is the live follow-up group runs through a follow-up course which takes about six months. Then as a group they go to EV startup and then they move into um, notionally the maturity area. So they become a a real growth group if you like. So we try and move them into mainstream church life. One of the things we had years ago was we'd have newcomer groups that were still going five years later when they really weren't newcomers anymore. It was, and so we, we try and transition it that way. And again, sometimes the numbers don't work and, and we don't have enough people or whatever and we just try and settle those people into new groups. Um, it's very messy. It's a very messy process because there's two reasons it's messy. Um, one is you don't know how many people you're going to get to follow up from each life. So you can get you know, 70 people there and you might get 30 people who join in to follow up or you might get 10. Likewise, of the 30 you get, in three weeks' time they could be down to 15 or in three weeks' time they could be still 30. And so it's very hard to – so we just kind of – it's one of the messiest things we do, trying to shoehorn this thing in. And sometimes, you know, we put really heaps of leadership resources in and it's just one person there at the end of six months. It's just how it, how it works. No, no. What we try, what we have tried to do, uh, is stream them according to focus areas. Um, but what we're doing now is we're particularly in our two morning congregations, we're starting to blur the edges of it because we're starting to find uh, demographic and other differences between congregations that mean we've got more leadership resources in some than others. So we have run that quite controlled. Uh, process we're now pulling back to uh, a thing that will facilitate more growth by freeing up some of that but that's a real trick actually on the control growth thing I was just recalling when we we dialed our growth groups down to the control level was the year before we moved into our new building so we we knew that we were in for a time of growth and it did come and we wanted to have more control around that uh, and then it's as the growth has, has trailed off a little bit from that initial surge, we've we've dialed back again. So, although uh, just a follow up question yep. on that, um, the pathway is that runs across uh, all the churches. So, yep. someone coming through life or newcomers um, oh, or EV yep, startup no, no. that runs across the churches. got all the focuses so you know uh, saturday breakfast peninsula 8 30 night you've got all the focuses lie um uh uh newcomers uh 
is the one event across all those. But as you move in, uh, EV startup is across all. But then as you move into uh, growth groups, you get the growth group structures all set up for each focus. Now I'm messing up all you get the idea, don't you? So, but it's what we're running here is an attempt to... Um, this is a particular issue for big church. One of the reasons I think evangelicals have not grown big churches is because we've never actually taken advantage of scale. What's happened for us is that we've effectively grown, grown churches of 800 by running clusters of churches that are small. And, you know, you can keep adding another church, but you, don't, you never actually take advantage of being a big church. And one of the advantages of big church is scale, efficiencies that come with scale. And so we've tried, to, we've tried to run with two agendas, which is take advantage of scale and keep penetration into a particular focus. Because if you run everything the same, you don't penetrate as strongly into a particular cultural focus. So you've got you to try and manage both those priorities. Um, the way we're doing it at present is newcomers is scale, so I now no longer go, the, the newcomer team runs that across for everybody. Uh, and then as we move through the process, we've decided we've have to, we have to make it more penetrating for the particular focus to keep it working into its cultural slice. And uh, yet, so life, life we're running, um, we, we wrestle with this one, but again, it's an issue of efficiency. Life runs in... With Peninsula, it now runs in three areas. We do a life for the Saturday night, Sunday night church. So the night churches have their own life and the Sunday morning churches have their own life and Peninsula has its own life. We used to only, one, we used to only run one life for all of EV, but what we found was that the life we were running for all of EV wasn't was disenfranchising the Saturday culture and the night culture. So the efficiency we gained, we were losing with the ability to actually connect to the people we're trying to reach in those cultures. So we had to bite the bullet about less efficiency for the sake of greater penetration. So the night one is particularly tailored. You're resting with that. Um, just some questions about how mission and the growth groups relate. Um, Andrew was saying before that you don't do mission in your growth groups. Um, so how do the growth groups relate to mission? If someone has a friend, they want to invite them. How does that work with their growth groups? And uh, when you're starting out... Um, Obviously, you can't run eight life courses with 70 people each time in your first year. So how do you, how do you think through mission in the early days? Yeah, look, I'll, I'll, I'll run you through it. The, um, uh, one, of the, one of the convictions I brought to this work was that if we made our small group work the mission work, the total church concept, we would burn our leaders slow down our ability to actually multiply growth group leaders because we'd be having such a high bar for who they were they'd never actually achieve. We would slow the whole thing down. And so I made a determination very on that we wouldn't do the total church thing, that we'd actually say, no, no, here's the growth group leader's task is only to nurture the people in word and prayer and provide a context for community. And in that setting, 
as they wrestle with the scriptures together prayerfully, they talk about all the purposes of the Christian life, which included mission. So yes, they'd pray about mission, they'd talk about mission out of the scriptures, and they just wouldn't, as a group, do mission. They wouldn't use the group for mission. They'd use it to energise and empower for the task. Um, and so, so I wanted to free us up for people, Christians, to get together and enjoy being around the word together and nurtured in it and give us a greater capacity for leadership. So how did we do it early on? Well, early on, you know, it was just me doing, uh, um, meeting people, inviting to Christianity Explained, taking people with me to do Christianity Explained. Um, but it didn't take long to work out, I guess it was about six, no, maybe 12 months in, I'm doing Christianity Explained courses with various people in their houses and taking people with me. It didn't take long to work out that if I'm going to reach 30,000 people, this is not the road. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, I will add people. You know, I'll, I'll get a couple of people converted each year. But then who's going to follow them up? If I'm going to keep chasing the evangelism thing, I won't have time to do the follow-up properly and we'll actually lose all the fruit we've created through that purpose. And so what I wanted to try and do was, was build a momentum for mission. And so I realized one of the ways to build momentum for mission was to put in place scaffolding and... Um, momentum engines i guess you'd call and so the 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 scaffolding was setting up various symbolic mission events so we'd get the evangelistic speaker not because i thought that was going to ruin 30,000 people but because it would do that as well as symbolically say what we're about um we started a family mission we did a carol service. We did these things to create symbolic expression of mission and what we're about in this place and get people to come and join with me a little bit more large scale to see me mission and be part of it and catch the vision for it. But then the life course grew out of a sense that one of the powers of kind of momentum and leveraging is that if you can do things together, it fuels and feeds and enlivens it and makes it last. So I figured instead of me doing Christian Explain with a couple of people, why don't I get a whole bunch of Christians together to do Christian Explain with two or three people? How do I do that? So I'm trying to think principles back. How do I do that? Well, how about we put on an evangelistic course that actually Christians like as well? And actually they get excited about and it evangelizes their friends. So that if I put on this thing and it has 20 Christians in it and no non-Christians, they'll still go home saying this is fantastic. So, and they'll want their friends, Christian and non-Christian, to come to it. So that enabled life to get some momentum and keep going long enough before it grabbed and bit and got non-Christians starting to come in numbers and then it became a thing we promoted hard. You know, as soon as we got someone converted out of it, well, not as soon as, but, you know, any conversions out of it, we worked hard, passed through the workout, is it appropriate to get them up? As soon as we could pass through the appropriate to get them up, we sold it. This is working. People are being converted to energise that whole work. Because I knew that by the momentum of us together in the task, it would empower the whole thing to move forward. Is that, does that engage in it? Yeah, I would. Yeah, yeah, I would. I, I, you know, there was there was only six of it. There, there was there, there was four of us who were committed to this task of mission. Did you know, you say you have to, and. Um, but I'd keep trying to infect people by bringing them with me until I had enough. And I I did, I did the training courses. I did two ways to live training. We did the church evangelism. Um, we, we're doing all of these things to try and...
explore our way to catch some energy. And then once we captured it, we ran with it. Yep. Are we still doing the event things? Sorry. Are you still doing the event type evangelism uh, to try and get that going? And uh, uh, my second question was, where can we purchase the life course material? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we're still, yes, we are still doing the event thing. I think um, oh, we, we run Summerfest now. Summerfest was... Uh, um, I'd watched beach missions for years and, and seen how wonderful they were at not only you know, bringing the gospel to people who weren't hearing it, but getting Christians together to think mission together. That's just a wonderfully exciting process. But the problem with Beach Mission was you'd do this wonderful mission work in a caravan park and they'd all go to back to Melbourne or back to Queensland and you're just all gone. So for years I'm going, when we get this church going, we're going to have a, we're going to have a Beach Mission in the church for the local people. And, um, and so what I did was I grabbed um, a Beach Mission team at Tawoon Bay, which is a couple of beaches up from this suburb here, and said, could you, once you finish Beach Mission, would some of you actually like to spend another week on the Oval at Erina High School, which is where we were meeting as a church, and we'll set up Beach Mission there for our church. And I persuaded them of the value of actually having it all tied into a church work. And so that was the nucleus of Summerfest. And I, gee, we started with, I don't know whether you were around, Ruth, or not, but we started with 40 kids or something like this, and... 20 adults now we've been running it ever since then we get 700 kids on this site 250 adults every summer fest and we we but what we've done is here's the mission mind what we've done is we've said when's the best time to actually catch fish not when's the best time for me to do mission you know when's the best well summer's a great time on the central coast to do mission because people have got a bit more time and they're you know, that's, you can watch cricket and you can sit on the, door, the, the kind of veranda and talk and think a bit more. You've got a, there's a kind of more lazy time. That's the time people are biting. And so we don't let anyone go on holidays through January. No CMS summer school, no go to the beach for two weeks. All staff are on deck. Well, actually, it shifted a little bit for various reasons, but for the many years, no staff away that we went hard tilt. We put Summerfest and we worked out that we've got to give them something to come to. We want to connect them into church. So January, we invented the January series, which is evangelistically focused sermon series through January. And so the whole of January is set up for the invite from Summerfest and carols and Christmas to then flow into church, to have an experience of church that's engaging with their issues before February hits and we begin our Bible series talks again. But you see, what we're trying to do is think of all of church from reach non-Christians and bring them through with us. Yeah. And part two was, where can we purchase a life course? I'll purchase, I mean, make it up. <laughs> Come on, Richard, you can do it. You said, I'll tell you what you it said is. before, you said before, take whatever you like. Take what we like. So I'm saying, where you can get, I take this? Talk, talk to Craig. But I'll tell you, all we did was, all I, um, Craig has made it much better than I did, but it's, it's not changed a lot. All, um, uh, it started off with me going, let's, uh, we want to catch people to, does life matter? And how can I have the fullest life? Life's meaningful and em- meaningless and empty. Ecclesiastes, that's the first talk. Um, let, let me show you some of the amazing evidence for the Bible that'll blow you away. You've, this is the best kept secret in the world. The Bible's actually so well founded historically that it'll astonish you. 
Now, both of those, so we give the evidences. We use a video called the, From the Memory Banks. It's a daggy, dorky thing we're remaking, but it serves its purpose. But, but all of that was intended, in my mind, to attract the Christian and the non-Christian. Because if I could help the Christian see how wonderfully meaningful the Christian life is and how much grounded firm the Bible is, they'd be excited about the Christian life. And then we go into uh, sin, uh, the, 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 the state we're in now and how terrible it is that you're a sinner, we're all going to hell. Then we look at the cross, the meaning of the cross and then resurrection and what do you do, what if you don't. All of that's in the context of a meal. Yes, that's... If you're, one of the things if you're a preacher, you just do that stuff every week. One of the things that's genius about it is that it's been done largely the same for about a decade. Is that One of the biggest mistakes I think most churches make is they change it every year. Oh, this year we're going to do Tuesday nights with dinner and we're going to call it this. Next year we're going to do something entirely different and we're going to do it on Wednesday night and there's no dinner but there's supper. And then we're going to do it in a cafe and then we're going to do it and it changes every single time and with every new course that blows through. And the congregation, as Andrew's saying, you're trying to bring the Christians to it to some extent. Hmm. Uh, having people in your church engage with mission in you, you at the very least, they need to understand what the structures are in your church. But if you change them every year, they don't know. So they don't have the confidence to invite because they don't know what they're inviting their friends to. The, the product that Craig has developed that is life is very much, everybody knows what it is. They know they can trust it. Mm. They know it's going to be good. They, they understand it. It's regular. And so they're really yep. happy to invite people along. So there's no barrier at that level where they're thinking, oh, is my church going to do a – I'm going to cross this bridge with my neighbour, take them to this thing at church, and it's going to really suck. <laughs> Just nudge a bit further. I, um, I, I, I used to work with John Chapman doing evangelism around Sydney Diocese, right, in other contexts, and uh, – and, one of the things that horrified me was that as an untested evangelist, a church would invite me to come and speak at their church for their Christians to invite their friends to hear the gospel. What horrified me was that they were setting this event up to do evangelism and asking their people to risk enormous personal social capital in getting their non-Christian to church, not knowing whether it's going to be good or not. It was me. I, they didn't know who I was. And if I was good, it would grow great. If I was bad, you'll never get that person to invite their friend to another church event again because they won't be ever able to be confident to risk, you see. And the other thing I reflected on was um, the churches that did those things twice in a row with a chapo, who the first week you go, um, you know, you advertise for six weeks that chapo's coming. You know John Chapman, the evangelist in the Sydney Diet? Six weeks. Um, Chapo's coming, Chapo's coming. Bring your friends, bring your friends. Uh, you come to church when Chapo's there and you go, oh man, Chapo's here. I forgot. And you get to the end of that service and you go, oh, that was awesome. I wish I had my friend. What's desperately important is that you have him on the next week so that people go, I'm really now motivated to get someone here because their confidence is way high, yeah? And so that regularity issue, your good product that's regular, so people begin to build their remembrance and captivated and momentum for it, and they begin to go, I missed life, I hear it was awesome, uh, it's on again at the same time every year, and I start to get, yeah, so that's exactly right. But, but you, may not, you may not hit upon the pattern in the first 6, 12 months, 18 months, but you're looking for the pattern. 
that you can begin to run for 10 years um, to get momentum going. Momentum's a key part of church growth. Yeah, Lots of decisions hinge on it. All right. Just, just a quick question. Um, when you're working out key people for key roles, what's the difference or what are the, some of the key differences between like an M leader and a focus leader, like in terms of skills and giftings and talents and abilities? There's a whole principle of leadership called getting good people on the bus. Some of you will have heard this one. In one sense, it doesn't matter where good people go as long as you've got good people with you on the bus. What seat they sit in doesn't matter. So the key isn't always the right person. It isn't always in some leadership positions. It, isn't, it doesn't matter so much. You know, Robbo could do almost... Well, he couldn't. There's some things he couldn't do. You couldn't do Mac, could you? No. So, you know, there's some gifts clearly that... There's some areas where it's not going to work as easily, but... We, we could put Robbo in almost any of those area, areas because you've got the right guy on the bus, he'll work for you, yeah? So I'm looking... There's two things in terms of leadership and staffing I'm doing. I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking strategically what I need to put in place and who I need to put in place, and I'm looking for that person who would best fit, and I'm looking for the opportunistic, just the great person to have on the bus, and I'll create a position for them. So I'm doing both things, and I'm keeping that in my mind as I'm roaming around the place... Uh, you know, I know what are the next three staff positions I need and I'm looking for people, but I'm also just bumping up against great people saying, you're so good I've got to find a position for you. Or I'll shoehorn you into some spot. Yeah. Did that answer it clearly? Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, two questions. First one, your... Tr- trickle your... off if you need to. All right. If you want to start going, that's okay. If you want to stick around, I'll keep going. Yep. Uh, your growth groups, do they... How often do they split, multiply? How do you organise that, work that? Yeah. What's been effective, what hasn't? I would just add to what Robbo says. Part of it's the principle of, of um, relationship connectivity and the number of join points you've got. So that... 18 to 25-year-olds don't have their relationship networks full and they've got a capacity for much more. So they don't mind meeting another 10 people and another 10 people. And In fact, there's something healthy for that because they won't always click and connect with the first 10 people you put them with. So actually for them, it's helpful for the chop and change. But the 40-year-old, 45-year-old father of four kids who's commuting to Sydney, he's only got five relationship connectors and once they're full, they're full. He can't take on more. Is that... Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, so you're asking... Can you say your question again? Um, just in regards to your growth groups. Yeah. Um, so I know... So Saddleback, for instance, I know in starting out, they would split quite often every year or so. They would split... Um, and then encouraged to do so, whereas now they, after growing so much, they now go for life groups. So once you're in a group, you're more or less in it until death or when, you know, mm. whenever. So just wondering what you guys do. Yeah, so we, we, kind of, we kind of have both things happening at the same time. So we, especially with the older groups, night, night church aside where we, we do move things around lots, but the other churches, we, we, we establish them... 
there's the, the expectation that this is an ongoing group that you can really commit to and dig in. But at the same time, there's a culture of um, uh, mission in the, the bigger sense. So we're part of a church that's growing. We're keen to support that growth. Now, I'm, I'm speaking idealistically. There are some people who grumble and complain. But um, in general, a group will, will rejoice when one of their members is, is being trained and developed as a leader and it's time for them to, you know, it's an opportunity for them to start a new group and they might take two or three people with them. Now, at night, you'll just do it really quick and they're pretty happy with it. In some of the morning congregations, you make, you do a lot more song and dance about it, more time, more celebration, more praying about it and thinking about it and dealing with it. And, um, and, and, but, but it's the same kind of thing, but just much more slowly. And we, yeah, and we start lots of new groups as well. So we have found, for the very same reason that um, the groups stay together when people are older, for that very same relational dynamic, new people bounce off those groups at a much greater rate than they do with a group that's just formed a few months ago. If you as a newcomer to church join a growth group that's been running for 10 years and you're the first new person in it, you will bounce out because it just... You, they have this big shared history that you don't have. And so you know, some, there's some groups I wouldn't put people in, not because the people in it are bad or anything, they've just been around too long, the dynamic wouldn't work. And I'll add to that with church. So you, you, the initial stage of a church plant, church plants tend to grow faster than established churches. It's a, except in some evangelical circles, that's a well-known dynamic. Um, church plants tend to grow faster. Now, why is that? Well, there's a number of reasons. Uh, one is because you're clearly output focused and you, it's clear that if I don't grow this thing, I won't pay the bills. It's as crass as that. If I don't grow this thing, it's going to be depressing. Let's, we, we just got to get more people. And so there's a real energy and drive because you see the output. Once you've grown to being paying the bills, I think someone mentioned this the other day, a little earlier. Once you start paying the bills, the energy for the output driven growth starts to fade, right? But the other thing that happens too is that one of the reasons grow, small churches, new churches grow is they're, they're all new people. And so, you know, I'm joining this group with a bunch of other new people that I will own life together with very quickly. And as soon as you... you churches are like custard. If you, if you leave custard sit for a while, it creates a skin. And you've got to keep breaking the skin up so that people can submerge into the thing chase the image a bit further and it's so the way to keep breaking the skin up is to start new groups or to break up existing groups to keep smacking that or to start new congregations that's one of the most powerful ways to break that skin uh, but you've got to find ways to create new contexts for new people to keep the dynamic of a growth of a new church going in an older church i think one of the things you you've done that i've observed is bringing new people into ministry as well so you don't have that sense that there's a there's a core group from the early days who are... Yeah, 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 yeah. good, good. Yeah. The other thing I observed is that uh, one of the dangers in an established church is that the, the ministry has been in the hands of the same people forever and it's very obvious as you join an existing church that there is an inner core that runs this church, makes all the decisions of this church. And, and I'll never get established and own this church if I can't break into that group. So what we did early on was create the culture of very soon moving past that one inner circle to not trying to stop them be the inner circle because they can't. Let me explain. You can't make guys in our early church who were newcomer, who were welcomers, 
decision makers keep adding new people into their lives. It's just naive. They, you can't keep making them make new friends all the time. So they will form into a core and that will be, that's reality. Own it. Stop being idealistic and dream. So what you do is you create other cores. So when you end up with a church with 20 core groups that people, there's no one core group that you feel you're out of. I've found my core group. You just keep, and you do that through enlisting high-level membership um, mature, um, ministry options. But that's scary, scary for the established people because they feel threatened. I feel threatened, they feel threatened. You've got to manage through all of that. Andrew, um, in our church, our key ministries are kids' church, youth group, women's, men's, and, um, and that's probably true for a lot of churches, but obviously they're not represented. But I assume you do those sort of things. So who looks after those kinds of things on your program? Yeah, that's, um, we call that um, another focus. Uh, it's, I, think, I think some people call it the life stage focus. So it's, uh, it's children, youth um, particularly, but we also have women in that as well. Uh, yeah. Sometimes we're... So, so of uh, those five M's, who looks after that? Oh, well, well again... Yeah, so, so women, for example, um, the, the main women's ministry structure we have is in maturity, which is our WOW groups. Um, but we also have other things that we run around the edges. So there's, in, in the, um, so, so Kathy runs uh, a thing for uh, younger women uh, where, where they get together and talk about issues of, you know, maturing and moving forward and thinking about motherhood and that kind of thing. We've got a group, um, a, a breakfast group that meets, uh, that comes out of the, the membership area. Um, it also has a, a bit of an evangelistic thing to it where they get a whole lot of people together and talk about some kind of topic over breakfast. So there's a few things that go on. Um, but but the, the central ministry uh, in terms of disciple-making with women, particularly where it's just women, and it, the central one is wow. Um, with our men's ministry, uh, again, our central men's ministry is the men in your growth group. Um, membership have started some, uh, restarted some men's ministry, just they have breakfast together and stuff like that. Early on, I shut down our men's ministry because I could see that um, it was uh, not achieving what we were hoping it was going to achieve. It was actually just burning a whole lot of our core guys who were turning up to these breakfasts. People weren't, if it was evangelistic, they weren't bringing friends. If it was, you know, it, it just wasn't, for the energy involved in setting up a breakfast and inviting people to it and paying money and organising cooks, and it just didn't kind of work. And so we've tried to fold it back into our growth group structure, but, you know, we're a bit, we're not, entirely happy with how it works at this point but there's more work to be done there and part of the issue is you want to work out whether say let me i'll give you youth and children see what is children is children a focus or is it a maturity activity so one of the things this forces us to have to keep doing is why are we doing this particular activity is it just because churches have this thing i mean churches always have a children's ministry you just do or is it actually is it for the sake of maturing is it for the sake of evangelism why are we doing it and in our estimation the the youth ministry is is actually a focus achieving all the five m's in it and as soon as we identified that we put a focus leader over youth who is establishing with 
the partnership of the senior M guys, the M structure in youth. So youth has all the M's working in it with volunteers and some staff. You see, so it, it, it as a focus does mission and has growth groups and has a ministry guy who's recruiting and training and all of that, magnification, so on and so forth. But with children, what we've identified with the children's work is that it's not, it's not the whole five M's working. It's actually under the maturity M for children in the focuses of each service. So it's identifying that shape the way we run them. Yeah. Uh, early on you said that um, one of the things that you did early on was to, um, I think you said something like maintaining or having a high view of church and often broadly throughout evangelicalism, um, often evangelicals sort of have a not a very high view of church and I'm just wondering whether you can reflect on um, having a high view of church and um, teaching a high view of church, um, how has that helped mitigate things like, you know, people um, being you know, mitigating things like people grumbling about the church growing and not knowing everyone or people grumbling about um, sort of having to move to a different growth group because and missing their friends. Like how does that, yeah, how does that mitigate some of those things that speak about us wanting to be comfortable rather than us wanting to be on mission? Yeah, the high view of church doesn't do that. Um, a high view of church in my, in my conception is that our high view is that church is for the purpose of gathering believers it's not the mission thing so i if you know the language i'm a knox robinson i i have that view of church the theology of church is it, the, the mission of church is not mission the mission of church is the gathering of believers around the word so church for us is for the believer with an eye to the unbeliever so this is where we stand diametrically opposed or at odds with Saddleback, which church for them is the mission activity and they put on other activities to mature believers. No, no, for us church is maturing believers and we've set up other structures to do the evangelism. That's why I drove, I went from, I, if, bear with me for a second, I, I think this is helpful. Um, I got headaches at Saddleback trying to work out, see the good and get past the problems. And one of the problems was, in my, in my view, that they, they quite rightly wanted to evangelise the world and they decided that the best place to get non-Christians to come in their culture and context was church because Americans are very highly church culture. The gathering, yeah. Whether it's Sunday, Saturday, the gathering, yeah. So just the gathering of believers around the word is church, what time it's on. For them, the, thank you, the, the Sunday gathering, the, the formal public gathering like that was a very easy invite for non-Christians. So they geared all of church to be a mission activity and they realised they needed mature believers so they shifted that, that purpose into a Wednesday night event where only believers are more likely to come out. But the inadvertent consequence of that was the Sunday gathering, the, weekend, the big weekend gathering is your flagship culture event. You can't get past it. Um, how you run church will shape the culture of your church. Good intention, that's where unbelievers come, let's shape it for them and do maturing elsewhere. But what happened was the culture of the way they ran their, their public church event 
span all, spun all the way back into the culture of dumbing down everything and their Wednesday nights slowly stopped working. So what, what we determined to do was say, now let's keep a high view of church as for the believer, but then where do we bring the unbeliever to? Regularly. Hence life. You see, so we, we reversed their model, recognised they were right to identify that you've got to set up a process. You've got to set up some way that you can move people through. Where's the point for the unbeliever to be moved through? Uh, church was not the first port of call necessarily. It might have been on the way through. Does that make sense? We finish. Have what I pray. Father, we do ask, please, that you might uh, win this country and uh, please equip us with the, the faithfulness to the scriptures that we need and the uh, wisdom required to uh, bring uh, the culture around us to see the truth that you have so wonderfully revealed. And we pray that you give us all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.